but we are starting today talking about what is happening in the United States. As you know, former U.S. President Donald Trump has been indicted by a Manhattan grand jury. So far, the charges in the indictment remain under seal. The district attorney's office has been investigating the hush money payments made during the 2016 presidential campaign to silence claims of an extramarital encounter. Trump's former lawyer, Michael Cohen, who will likely be the star witness if there is a trial, commented earlier today. They're going to try to attack my credibility day in and day out, thinking that they're winning the war, which is really his freedom, when you're not. In fact, instead of playing the, um, you know, the media game, he should be worrying more about a court of law, not a court of public opinion. We are going to talk more about this now. Joining us is Alan Sanders, uh, attorney, former Time Magazine senior reporter and professor emeritus of political science at St. Peter's University in Jersey City, New Jersey. Thank you so much for taking some time with us today. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, What is your reaction to the indictment? I know there has been a lot at this point, but beginning with the news of the indictment, what was your response to that? Well, I mean, two responses, I suppose. First, historic. Everybody has said that this uh, sort of thing has never happened in the United States. No president and no former president has ever been indicted. Uh, But on the other hand, not surprising. So much scandal has surrounded Donald Trump. He's been on the edge of the law in so many instances and so many accusations that sooner or later something was going to come down and result in some sort of criminal indictment. Uh, Nobody knew quite what, uh, but this is the one that uh, landed first, and uh, that's the one that everybody is focusing on. Uh, And so it's not surprising exactly, although uh, the whole set of events is rather historic here uh, for the United States. How do you see things playing out as well? I know all eyes have been on Florida, where uh, the former president is currently. How do you see things playing out over the next few days? Well, I think what will happen is that uh, the former president will be processed pretty much like any other um, criminal defendant, criminal suspect. Uh, He'll be brought into the New York uh, courthouse, and he will be processed with uh, fingerprinting and a mugshot and be told of his charges and then released. The process usually takes several hours. It might be speeded up a little bit uh, in order to uh, deal with security concerns. Uh, But I suspect that much of it will be done behind closed door, if not all of it, uh, and he'll be processed very quickly because there's great concern about security, and so there's no need to delay or to put on a public show of things. So uh, I think that's what we can expect. Uh, pretty quick processing. Uh, the, pre- the former president will come, will go, um, and that should be uh, the end of things. Now, of course, he may choose to hold a uh, press conference or make some remarks or something. I would just suspect that his attorneys would advise against that, because as you know, any criminal suspect that says things after arrest, uh, whatever he or she says may be used against him or her. Right. But, uh, and also though, but looking at how Donald Trump has carried himself in the past and uh, perhaps not always taking that advice, uh, I, I don't think it would be a huge surprise to people, would it, if he did say something? No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, and so that's what people will be watching for. Less uh, about the, the, the processing, the criminal justice processing, and more about what, if anything, Trump uh, intends to do about it.
the the case itself or the counts themselves, several U.S. media outlets, uh, CNN, several others as well, are, are citing sources that are familiar with the case saying that uh, Donald Trump faces more than 30 counts that are related to business fraud in this indictment. Do you think, will it, will it become more clear? I know it's sealed at this point, but do you think that the public will get a better idea on exactly what is in the indictment? Oh, sure. Uh, once he is uh, indicted, uh, we'll know exactly what, uh, what's in there. Uh, that is to say, once he's arraigned, I should say. I mean, he's been indicted already. But once he's arraigned, he will uh, be told exactly what the charges are against him. That's what the, one of the purposes of an arraignment, so that you know exactly what you're facing. And at that point, um, everything will become public. So we'll know what those 30 accounts or 30 set of charges really are, whether they're really separate charges or whether they're related to one set of transactions where, you know, uh, you can sort of uh, split up a set of transactions into 30 pieces. We'll, we'll see uh, what that is next week, and, and we'll certainly know a lot of, more about it. I should say this, however, about this um, uh, case. Uh, it's garnered the headlines, and it's big news because, of course, it's a first in U.S. history. But we should always bear in mind that Donald Trump faces other possible charges that are far more serious. Now, if any of those other charges result in a formal indictment, this case will pretty much disappear from the headlines. Um, and those other cases will start to garner attention and uh, preoccupy U.S. politics, because those are very serious charges uh, if an indictment ensues about uh, trying to alter an election and uh, trying to uh, declare uh, himself the winner when, in fact, he lost an election uh, fair and square. Now, we'll see if any charges emerges out of that, formal charges. But if those things happen, this case, I think, will uh, disappear from the headlines pretty quickly. And you kind of touched on this. So is it, is it to, not to oversimplify it, but it's a matter of timing, and it happened that these were the allegations or these were the charges that, uh, that we're dealing with first? Well, yes. I mean, you're dealing with several jurisdictions. Uh, you're dealing with New York State in this particular case, the hush money case. Uh, then you're also dealing with another state case in Georgia, also dealing with uh, possible election uh, problems and, and issues. And then you're dealing with a federal case uh, in Washington. Those are three separate jurisdictions, and uh, they need not and don't typically coordinate. It's whoever comes out first with the evidence that he or she thinks, uh, that is to say, he or she being the prosecutor, he or she thinks are the more meritorious and the ones that are processed uh, the quickest uh, through grand jury proceedings. So there's no coordination here. Uh, this is the first one that came along, and of course, because it's the first, it gets a lot of attention. Uh, but uh, as I point out, those other cases at the federal level and in the state of Georgia are more serious allegations about possible election tink tinkering. Uh, and if they come forward with an indictment uh, and ultimately go to trial, those will be the ones uh, that will be really important and very serious cases and um, could result in some very, very serious penalties for the former president if he is found guilty. Uh, we did hear a bit or uh, in the statement released by Donald Trump, he, he called this political persecution. He said it was election interference at the highest level in history. Uh, he, he went on, I, I think he said he wanted the witch hunt or he thought that the witch hunt would backfire massively on uh, Joe Biden. What kind of political implications does this have? Or as this moves forward, what does this mean for Donald Trump and his, his attempt to get reelected? 
Well, you know, it's kind of like a broken record, if I can choose a sort of uh, uh, old phrase. I mean, we've heard this every time uh, that Donald Trump finds himself in trouble. It's political uh, witch hunt. It's uh, political persecution. Um, on the legal front, it means absolutely nothing. On the political front, what it does is to try and solidify his base and basically get some fundraising out of that. Uh, we've seen this movie before. Um, you know, views about Donald Trump politically are pretty much baked in in the United States. There is a minority. It's a large minority, but nonetheless, one should never forget it is a minority of MAGA supporters and MAGA cultists who uh, will always support Donald Trump. Anything he does must be right because Donald Trump says it's right. But uh, the majority of Americans are not MAGA loyalists. And so one should always remember that Donald Trump has never won the popular vote in any election in which he has run. Now, he's won the support of the Republican Party, but when you get to the general electorate, Donald Trump has never won the popular vote. And so what you see here in the posturing is simply to gather support and to raise money on behalf of Trump. The uh, politicians, the Republican politicians that are coming to his support right now, uh, without knowing what the facts are really of the case, because nothing has been revealed publicly about that indictment yet, but what they're really doing is they're trying to go for the Republican Party, MAGA loyalists, the base of the Republican Party, you've got to get those people to support you in primary, in primary elections, if you want to be the Republican nominee. But once you get that nomination, you've got to face a general electorate. And we know that uh, from past election results that being a real MAGA loyalist gets you into real trouble with the general electorate. Uh, you may get the nomination, uh, the party nomination, but it gets you into trouble with the general electorate. So uh, this, is, this is the political situation. You, if you're a Republican, you've got to support Donald Trump, but you get into trouble with that uh, once you have to reach the general electorate stage of, of uh, the political process. And one other question, and, and just kind of looking at this, and certainly we've seen how law enforcement has been on high alert and there are concerns about protests or, or what could happen as this moves forward. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on those implications of, of, like you said, this is unprecedented and people are having very, very strong reactions to it? Well, you know, it's hard to predict. Uh, we know that Donald Trump had predicted, uh, you know, on, on his uh, social media platform or wherever he said it, that he would be arrested last week. Uh, or uh, I should say not last week, uh, this, this past Tuesday. He had said that he would be arrested this past Tuesday. And so law enforcement had, I mean, nobody knew whether that was going to happen or not, but law enforcement prepared for that. And really there was no major showing of any support for Donald Trump at the courthouse um, on this past Tuesday. Um, now that, of course, we do know for sure that he's going to be um, arraigned uh, next Tuesday, uh, it's anybody's guess as to whether people will actually show up. But law enforcement is well prepared for this, and so and and the demonstrators who would want to demonstrate uh, in support of Donald Trump also know that law enforcement is well prepared. So knowing that, um, it's hard to predict what will happen. But I suspect that many people will figure that uh, probably it doesn't pay to uh, do anything dramatic because law enforcement is quite prepared for what could or might uh, happen uh, next week. All right. Uh, Professor Sanders, thank you so much for taking the time and for joining the show today. My pleasure. Take care, Jill. Well, the Carpenters Regional Council in Victoria has become the first craft union in this province that is going to be offering naloxone kits and training to its members for free. And joining us to talk more about this is Matt Carlo, representative of the Carpenters Regional Council in Victoria. Matt, thanks so much for taking some time today. 
You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a, a, an interesting uh, program that uh, your uh, council is going forward with, and some of the numbers are, are quite uh, staggering to look at them. But before we get into those numbers, can you talk a little bit more about the decision and what this is going to look like providing these kits? Yeah, so the Carpenters Regional Council, you know, we we really do care about our workers and, and, and their, their families. And, you know, we've all heard far too many stories of, of um, you know, losing our brothers and sisters to this opioid crisis. So, um, you know, it was an opportunity for us to affect some positive change. And, um, yeah. And so how will it work then as far as providing the kits? And I know it doesn't take very long. I, I've done the training as well. It doesn't take very long to learn how to use the kits, but how is that going to work as far as getting them out and getting that training so people are comfortable if they do need to use them? Right. So we're working closely with the Construction Industry Rehab Program in BC. Um, and we've had a few staff members here in our Victoria offices take their Train the Trainer program. Uh, so we're well equipped to provide training to our members. And we've also ordered a, a supply of, of kits, um, as well as training kits to our Victoria office here and stockpiled right at our front counter. So as members come in to our hiring hall to, you know, whatever it may be, discussing work opportunities or just coming in for general information, it gives us a good opportunity to discuss the program with those members. Um, and state our objective of, of getting a kit in the hands of every single one of them. Um, at that point, we can you know, work to sort of break down some of the barriers and stigma that revolve around this opioid crisis um, and, and, and spread that message to our membership here in Victoria. Uh, one of the numbers that is included in the, the news release that, that your organization put out about this, that it, it cites numbers from the, I think it's the Construction Industry Rehab Plan, and it, it says that 55% of all of the people who have died during this opioid epidemic are construction workers, and that's a number that's increased a lot during the past five years. That seems like an incredibly large number. It, it certainly is. And why do you think that the number is so big that we're seeing this this large of a number of overdose deaths, specifically in the construction industry? That's a tough question to answer, to be to be quite honest. Um, maybe maybe if we could look at it too, because I know you talk about this, and certainly we've heard this from the chief coroner. And every time we get the the opioid numbers that are released throughout the province, that it's it's people dying alone in their homes. It's people, and you mentioned the stigma, who are maybe uncomfortable asking for help and maybe uncomfortable admitting that that, that there's an issue. Do do you think that this will help, or that more needs to be done with initiatives like? this to make sure that people know that it is okay to, to ask for help and it is okay to tell people about this? I think there's always more work that could be done. I mean, obviously, this is a step in the right direction. And, you know, we're, we're hoping that uh, shortly we can have this program um, expand to be at least provincial-wide. Um, but, yeah, it's, 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 it's very important to the Carpenters Regional Council that we we remove barriers and start an open discussion with our members so that they're they're comfortable coming to us 
not only to re receive you know these naloxone kits, but also talk to us about um, you know issues that they may be facing. Do you think that this will help start conversations as well in that it's one thing to have naloxone and we know that naloxone has saved many lives and continues to save lives. But do you think that this could also then lead to discussions about treatment and discussions about getting help and, and getting, um, getting, other, getting into perhaps treatment programs for people that need that? I hope so. You know, this is not necessarily meant to be a, a fix-all type solution, um, but it, if it could serve as a pathway to open those types of conversations, I think that would be, um, you know, a fantastic result. Uh, have you heard at all from other industry groups or other councils uh, that might be interested? I know, again, that you're the first craft union doing this. Uh, have you heard the, if any others are interested or, or might follow your lead? We've heard some rumblings. Um, certainly our, our affiliated offices throughout the province are, are um, you know, on board with the program and, and we will be hopefully rolling this program out to them quite shortly. All right. Well, it's uh, definitely a, a very interesting program and uh, and uh, I'm sure it uh, will be well received by, by many uh, in the industry and elsewhere following along. Uh, do you anticipate there will be any problem getting the kits out there or getting them to the members of the union or is that is that already started? So far, uh, we haven't seen any issues. I mean, the, the uh, reception from our membership here in Victoria has been very positive. Um, more so than I think we even initially anticipated, um, which is which is a fantastic thing, you know. Um, and and we've been reassured from the industry rehab plan that procuring the kits is is not going to be an issue. So uh, hopefully we see you know an even further uptick in in uh, response from our membership here in Victoria and throughout the province. All right. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for joining us and for talking more about this today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jill. Well, as you've likely heard, the upcoming redesign of Vancouver's Broadway Corridor will be going ahead without a new separated bike lane. Council voted yesterday to accept a city staff recommended plan that will see the curb lanes reallocated to wider sidewalks and more public space. And it includes the possibility to add a cycling and active transportation lane sometime in the future. Well, we wanted to talk more about this and we'll certainly be opening up the phone lines again uh, coming up in just a few moments but first we are checking in with Jeff Lee who is the co-chair of the Vancouver UBC local committee of hub cycling Jeff thank you so much for being with us Thanks for having me. Uh, I know uh, groups like yours and many others who have been calling in today uh, are, are, are upset with this, uh, this decision, would have liked to have seen the plan to go ahead with those separated lanes. Uh, can you talk a little bit uh, about your reaction to this vote at Vancouver City Council? Well, we're disappointed um, that Council, despite its commitment to putting these lanes on Broadway, has decided to rebuild the current street without them and then come back and rip it up and do the, do it again. And, and we just don't think that's a, uh, a smart approach to uh, spending taxpayers' money. Um, the longer we delay this, the longer we delay the benefits of it. And uh, we haven't you know, had a vote to, to kill the bike lanes. We have had a vote to, to not do them now. The streets are already built, torn up, and they're going to put them back without this and, and then come back to it. Uh, it just doesn't seem very, very smart. 
I know that there had been some other groups, uh, the Board of Trade, uh, which had come out recently saying that this is a street that is needed uh, for traffic, uh, for the movement of goods, uh, for accessing the businesses and such, and was opposed to these separated bike lanes. What are your thoughts on the groups that that were opposed to, to going ahead and putting them in? I uh, was one of the uh, 42 speakers, and uh, I didn't hear from a single business improvement association representing anyone along Broadway who had concerns about the Broadway lane during the the extended meeting uh, over the past couple of days. What we have have seen is that, or what we know, is that we're going to move a lot more people along Broadway with a subway, and to say, though, we used to have six lanes, so we still need to have six lanes of traffic doesn't make any sense. We're going to move people by by the Broadway subway. And so staff have recognized that and said, we're already going down from six lanes to four lanes. And they could also go down to two lanes for vehicles, they said, but, you know, the options were either taking it down to four lanes or taking it down to two lanes. And we said, well, it makes sense that when you take it down to four lanes that uh, you include active transportation lanes because there are not equivalent streets that serve the same purpose uh, for people to access these businesses. I think those businesses are are dealing with a lot of uh, stress of of people not being able to get to their storefronts during construction. And what they're going to need when this uh, construction is complete is lots of people on a dynamic, lively street, people going past their storefronts, people spending money, and uh, um, that is best achieved with a complete street design where people can walk, people can cycle, people can scooter, and certainly there will be multiple lanes for driving but we're you know the station blocks are the stations are are six and eight blocks apart let's uh let's recognize that people need to travel between those stations to reach all of these businesses. That's, that's where we should be thinking. I know there were, uh, was a lot of talk as well of the current bike lanes that are on 10th Avenue and on 7th Avenue. And uh, the argument was made that one of the reasons that this lane isn't needed right now or, or in the near future on Broadway is because cyclists have those lanes. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, those lanes don't serve any of the businesses on Broadway. Um, there are no lanes planned at the moment for going along Broadway, and staff have said at one point, well, people can come down the, uh, the cross streets. Well, then how are they going to move along Broadway to get those, to those businesses? And, it, you know, the brave ones are, are going to be um, mixing it up with cars. Um, many of them, particularly the electric scooters that uh, Vancouver is introducing with the scooter share, are going to be on the sidewalk. So what we are going to see is a worse environment for pedestrians, a worse environment for patios and, uh, and street uh, activities. And uh, um, 7th and 10th just, just don't same, serve the same purpose. 10th, and, 10th out of the six kilometers of the Broadway plan only has protected lanes for about six blocks of it. The rest of it certainly isn't anything like a uh, safe and uh, comfortable place to cycle. And uh, so I, I think it's a, it's a really false uh, thing to, to compare those as, as alternatives to protected lanes on Broadway, which actually serve the businesses and, 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 and jobs on Broadway. Right. Is there a possibility, though, what if those lanes were, were made more safe or there was that, that more of a dedicated lane? And I know what you're talking about uh, on 10th Avenue. Uh, that's the way I, w- I go uh, often if I'm riding my bike or, or on a scooter. I'll go down 10th and then I will go down to Broadway to whatever business I'm going to and then walk my bike or my scooter on the sidewalk uh, because I, I can't stand it when people ride on the sidewalks. But is there a possibility if, if they improve the lanes in either 10th or 7th, could you you not access them by riding on those streets and, the, and using the cross streets to get to those businesses? Well, 
there is a plan to improve 10th, and, and I think 7th is a bit of a write-off. It's, uh, it's got too much traffic on it, and the intersections aren't safe. But 10th has the potential to be a much better bikeway from Trafalgar to, um, to uh, Victoria Drive. And, and, and that covers a similar length to the, the Broadway plan. But in the years that we've been improving, and the city has had it as a goal, you know, six, eight years, whatever it is that we've been working on 10th Avenue, we've accomplished six blocks. So, it, you know, it, it's, it's a pipe dream to think that we're going to protect 10th Avenue. Um, and, and, and even if we did, even if we made it much safer and more comfortable, you know, it, it doesn't put the businesses and the jobs and the, and the, and, and the people on 10th Avenue. It's still on Broadway. So I think what we have to recognize is that if we don't provide safe and comfortable routes on Broadway, um, people using micro-mobility devices, whether they be scooters or electric scooters or electric skateboards or bikes or e-bikes, are likely to be on the sidewalk. And, and, and we just don't think that's a, a good place for them. Um, we teach in all of our training and our courses not to ride on the sidewalk. But a recent uh, account done along Broadway to, to see what's happening with micromobility devices along Broadway, um, the number that I was reported to me by, by the people doing the account was it was in between two-thirds and three-quarters of the, of the wheel devices on Broadway were found on the sidewalk. So then the team went up one block to 10th because it was in the same block with the hospital district and said, oh, and what's happening where we have protected bike lanes? And the number of wheel devices that were on the sidewalk was under 1%. And that's, a, that's in the same block. And that's just a, a picture of what's going to happen. We don't think that's good for anybody. It certainly doesn't promote a patio culture or safe and comfortable. And it really doesn't promote access to these stations. The original business case for the Broadway uh, subway included guiding principles issued by the city of Vancouver to TransLink and the government as part of the business case that said we, they were committing that there had to be multimodal access to the subway stations to ensure complete ridership of it, a broader catchment area. The city hasn't included for active transportation connections to any of the of the uh, of the uh, stations being built along Broadway. Um, it, it, they've simply left it off, and so what we're going to see is a free for all on the sidewalks. We fear. Is it is it a ticketable offense if you're on a bike or a, a scooter or a wheeled device and riding on the sidewalk? Yep. So isn't it an, is it not an enforcement issue then? Because just to, to simply say, oh, I'm riding on the sidewalk because there's no bike lane, that, that doesn't really fly. But, but if it was being enforced, wouldn't that be a deterrent for people? It doesn't appear to be in practice. And I don't know that we can afford the enforcement um, to, to, to put people on every block. We're talking about a six-kilometer stretch. Are we going to station officers every half block and watch for people using scooters on the sidewalk? The, the, in the real world, People will go there, not because they want to. Many will be embarrassed to do so, but they're doing it because it's the only safe place. And, and realistically, people don't typically ride along to Divine or Ash or, or some street and then get off their bike and push their bike along the sidewalk or carry their kick scooter or, or their e-scooter. They just weave in between people walking. And uh, you've got to remember that at every one of the station plazas, it's going to be very busy. And, and the best example in my mind is at Camby uh, with the Candleline station. And think about what the, the, the sidewalk looks like in front of the Camby and Broadway uh, SkyTrain station. And now say, well, we're going to have anyone with a micromobility device weaving through that. Um, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. Uh, is it your concern as well that by pushing this ahead, uh, even though council is saying it could be built at a later date, that it won't be? I think that we're just delaying the, you know, it's going to be more expensive. Um, 
council has said, well, we'll just wait a while. And, and, you know, and there's never going to be more money. There's never going to be easier. Construction costs are never going to come down. So it's going to be that much harder to build it in the future. There are analysis of, of the gaps in Vancouver, including by, by, by city staff and by groups like Mine Hub Cycling, that analyze where the gaps are in the network and the criticality of, of closing those gaps. And Broadway rates very highly as a gap in our network. It rates highly because of the destinations along there, because of the, um, the businesses and the jobs and, and 50,000 people coming to live there. And to say that, uh, you know, I think we're, we're going to wake up one day and say we probably should have done this when it was cheaper and easier and the roads were already dug, dug up. Who, 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 who made this decision? And, and so I think that we're eventually going to build it. But I think we're going to wait too long. We're going to miss the, the benefits and we're going to add a lot of cost. And, and we, ju- we just don't think that's smart business. It's not smart planning. All right, Jeff, we'll leave it there for today. Appreciate your time today, though. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. Well, it's not exactly the best way to start a new month, but as of tomorrow, a lot of things are going to cost more in BC. And joining us to talk more about this list is Carson Binda, the BC Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Carson, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on your show today, Jill. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Well, it's. I wish we were talking about perhaps taxes going down, although one of these items, it's not going to be as painful as, uh, as it was going to be, I suppose. But let's go through this list and uh, tell us exactly what is going to cost us more as of tomorrow. Well, tomorrow on April 1st, alcohol taxes are going up. April 1st, the carbon tax is going up. And on April 1st, MP pay, you guessed it, is also going up. That means MPs are taking more money from your pocket in taxes using it to line theirs. Yeah, it's kind of hard, uh, on the one hand, to, to look at it and see all of these taxes going up on things that, uh, even if you don't consider them a necessity, although some of them certainly are, and then to also see uh, MPs giving themselves, uh, themselves uh, a raise at the same time. Yeah, but the big point here is that the increase in the carbon tax, which is going up from about 11 cents per litre to about 14 cents per litre, is going to make everything across the board cost more. You know those big trucks that take the food from the farms to the grocery stores? Well, they run on gasoline and diesel. The increased carbon tax is going to make food more expensive. It's going to make everything we buy in grocery stores more expensive for consumers. And, and looking at that specifically, so uh, as of tomorrow, both in, if we're looking at BC specific, so both the provincial and the federal carbon taxes going up. And like you said, there's going to be that ripple down effect. But if we're looking specifically at the carbon taxes for the price of a liter of gas for anybody who's going and filling up, what is, what is the increase going to look like? Well, the on average, a liter of gas is going to cost you in the lower mainland about 78 cents per liter in taxes alone. The first provincial carbon tax, it's going up from 11 cents on average to 14 cents. The second provincial carbon tax, which is buried in our clean fuel standards, is going to cost an average of about 17 cents. Add on TransLink taxes that cost about 18 and a half cents per liter. Federal sales tax, which costs about nine and a half cents per liter. Provincial, uh, provincial and federal excise taxes, which combined add up about eight and a half cents per liter. 
It's death by a thousand cuts for British Columbians who need to drive to work or school or take uh, their car down to, to the hospital for a doctor's appointment. Uh, that's also going to be uh, more expensive if you park. Uh, I know that uh, a lot of parking fees are going up as well. Uh, Carson, you mentioned uh, things like beer, wine, spirits, cannabis, and uh, yes, the argument could be made that those aren't necessities, but uh, for many people, those are something that they purchase, or at least some of those things. We've been running ads on this station, uh, certainly uh, the group that was very much opposed to the 6% uh, tax increase, which was what it was going to be. Uh, It was not going to be 6.3 now. It's going to be 2%. But what are your thoughts on the fact that we are still even going to see that 2% increase? Canadians are already paying way too much tax when it comes to the sale of alcohol, beer, and uh, sorry, wine, beer, and spirits. Look, every time you crack a a case of Keats with your buddies or, or open a bottle of Syrah with your better half, you're already paying more than half the sticker price in taxes. A 2% increase, that's not as bad as the 6.3 that government was initially proposing, but it's still undemocratic. MPs this month voted on a motion opposing the alcohol tax. They opposed any alcohol tax. So for government to be ramming through this 2% tax hike anyways, it's undemocratic and it's bad for those small businesses like breweries and restaurants that rely on alcohol sales to make their bills at the end of the month. And we certainly uh, have been hearing from uh, restaurants and those in the the industry as well. Uh, So, uh, and again, uh, better than uh, 6.3, but still certainly some concerns uh, about that. Uh, You mentioned the wages, the salaries for MPs and the fact that they are giving themselves a raise. Uh, We also know that the federal government's minimum wage is going up. Do you think that's going to have much of an impact? Yeah, look, taxpayers are struggling right now. We know that one in five Canadians are skipping meals because they can't afford to feed themselves normally. I mean, food banks here in BC and across Canada are reporting record-breaking demand. This will be MPs' fourth pay raise since the start of the pandemic when life has been getting harder for everyone else. I mean, it's the story of the have-nots versus the have-yachts in Ottawa. Uh, Justin Trudeau already makes more than $380,000 per year. He's taking a $10,000 pay raise. Look, it's not rocket science. MPs need to stop taking pay raises while their constituents are starving. I know that this happens and that your organization speaks out about this whenever we see the pay raises. And like you said, this is the fourth one during the pandemic. Why do you think there's not more of an outcry or that people aren't getting more angry about this? Well, it's convenient for the MPs to say that they've got no choice in the matter, that they're just taking this pay raise because it's what they have to do. But that's not true. I mean, here in B.C., MLAs froze their pay this year because they saw that taking a pay raise while everyone else is struggling is just wrong. Tim Houston over in Nova Scotia, well, he recalled his legislature, froze MLA pay, and went a step further by cutting his own pay by $11,000. Federal MPs have also stopped pay hikes before. Um, During the 2008-2009 recession, MPs froze their pay raises up to 2013, because they saw that Canadians were struggling with the cost of living, and it's wrong for politicians to be rewarding themselves and taking more and more money out of your pockets when we can't afford it.
Uh, of all the things that are going up tomorrow as well, the things we've talked about, fuel, uh, the federal minimum wage, uh, the tax on beer, wine, spirits, on cannabis, uh, which do you think is going to have the biggest impact on people? The carbon tax cuts deep because it hits every um, single part of the manufacture and distribution process for goods and services. I mean, those groceries that you buy in the grocery store, we've all faced sticker shock this year as those prices go up. Well, the carbon tax helps increase the price of those goods. It makes the lettuce, the ground beef, the milk you buy at the store more expensive. So we need to see politicians taking affordability and cost of living seriously by cutting the carbon taxes and leaving that money in people's pockets to begin with. All right, Carson, thanks for joining us. Uh, Again, not the greatest news uh, in telling people everything that's going to cost more starting tomorrow, but thanks so much for joining us and for talking about this today. Thanks so much for having me on, Jill. Have a great day. You might have heard about this story. It is a fight that has taken decades, and the goal was to free a southern resident killer whale from captivity in the United States. And it looks like there will be a happy conclusion to that story. It is about the whale that is known as Lolita and how to get that whale out of her current home at the Miami Seaquarium. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Eric Pittman, director of the Canadian Orca Rescue Society. Eric, thank you so much for being here. Thanks very much for reaching out, Jill. Well, it's, I know, a story that has captivated so many hearts and people have been following along. Can you give us a bit of a, a background, though, for people that aren't familiar with Lolita's history and, and what has happened to this whale? Can you kind of give us a, a brief background on Lolita? Absolutely. Back in the 60s and 70s, uh, the Aquarium trade was just starting to uh, fill its rosters with different kinds of creatures to for entertainment, and orcas were part of that. So during the 60s and 70s, they captured about 300 of these orcas, some of them multiple times, but the end result was that they took about 50 orcas from the southern resident pod. So they, there was a particular day back uh, August 4th, 1970, when they had corralled 100 orcas in Penn Harbor in, uh, or Penn Cove in, in Whitby Island. And they took as, uh, as many as they could. Uh, they ended up with about 50 orcas from the southern resident pod, most of which were females because they wanted them to have, uh, you know, breeding stock. Uh, they took, uh, and as young as possible. Lolita was about four years old at the time. She was captured with a number of other babies, uh, and six of those babies passed away within the year. So she was one of the survivors of that uh, that horrific day. And if you Google on, um, if you Google Penn Cove and uh, orca capture, you'll probably find photographs and maybe a video of it. It's a pretty horrific sight. And uh, Lolita has been passed around from aquarium to aquarium for a number of years, and her name is now changed into Tokatai which is a, uh, what the uh, first peoples, indigenous people call it. Um, and for the last, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know exactly how long, but 10 to 20 years, she's been in solitary confinement in a small pool in Miami with no shade. And if you can imagine people in solitary confinement for that long, that's got to hurt. 
Um, I, I first was aware of her about 30 years ago, and I started a campaign to raise awareness and start to get her out of that, uh, get her out of the uh, aquarium that she was housed in at the time. Uh, I couldn't get any traction, but other people took up the cause, and they have been fighting nonstop. In, in, uh, I believe she was in San Diego for a while and in Miami. Uh, there's a fellow in Miami that's been holding a, a picket uh, and protest sign for years outside the Miami Aquarium demanding her release. So what has changed then, or or what do you think changed in that, like you said, this has been going on for decades and people calling for her release and for something to change. What was it that led to a pretty major development in this story? Well, I think it's the public pressure. I think people like Alejandro, who's been holding that picket sign and educating people as they go into the Miami Aquarium, started to have uh, a detrimental effect to their business. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is that she is, she's almost 50, or I think she's only 50 years old now, and she's running at the end of her entertainment life, so she has probably made them as much money as she's going to get them, and now she's only a detriment to them. So, you know, they have to do something with her or take care of her in her old age. So this is probably the most uh, public-savvy thing they can do. Nobody wants to see the, another orca die in captivity. Right. And, and we've seen movement on this at other aquariums that have been more responsive, I guess, so we could say, to the public pressure. Uh, it seems like the, the Miami Aquarium, they seem a little bit, uh, are they the last kind of holdout or, or not as responsive? Well, I would say probably not as responsive. Uh, they've certainly heard the calls loud and clear, and I think what's happened is the tidal wave of objection to their actions has overtaken them, and somebody there has realized that they should do something uh, for this orca that's been the, their main attraction for, for many, many years. Uh, she's now, I think she's actually 57 now. Uh, and like you said, she's yeah. been in captivity for almost her entire life. Uh, so what what is the plan then with with the, the fact that she will be released, the, the Miami Aquarium has announced that there will be, that plans are, are now being made for her release sometime uh, within the next year and a half to two years. How do you see that, that, that playing out? Well, they have a cove in Washington where they plan to uh, place her. And, it, I mean, it is dependent upon a whole number of factors. This is the first step in a long journey or maybe it's not the first step, but it's one of the first steps. The first step was getting the Lummi tribe in Washington to approach the uh, aquarium with their demands for their uh, sacred blackfish to come back. And so now the plan is to create a sanctuary for her. They will have to treat her like an invalid that can't hunt on its own. So for the first while, they will have to teach her to feed herself and to recognize salmon and hopefully after a period of acclimation return her to her pod and her mother is still alive in l pod hmm. and has there been a scenario like this before when a whale has been along uh, been away and been held into captivity that long and then been reintroduced to her pod well i think this is the longest whale but Really, you know, we all remember that story. The subject of that movie was released and got uh, 
uh, had three years in the wild with wild orcas after its rehabilitation. So we know that it can happen. Uh, that particular whale did pass away after three years of freedom, but arguably that's better than passing away in, um, in captivity. You know, and the fact that uh, Ocean Sun, which is Lolita or Tokatai's mother, is still alive, leads for the potential that it could be quite a joyous occasion for a lot of people and, and the orcas. Right. And, and well, for sure. And I, I could hardly imagine that, that reunion or, or what that would look like. Uh, you mentioned the, the whale in Free Willy, and I think that obviously comes to mind when looking at this story as well. Why do you think, though, that that story got so much more attention than the story of Lolita? Well, Hollywood, you know, um, it's there. There's endless stories of uh people and animals that injustice is being done to, and some of them strike a chord. And it depends on how well the story is crafted and how the public accepts it. You know, if, if everybody that was unjustly incarcerated had their story told to the public in a, such a compelling way, they would probably be released. But if you just have someone say, you know, you're unjustly um, incarcerated, and they don't bring enough context to it, to motivate people, the situation won't change. Do you think there so is? I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. So I think it's the, the 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 amount of time that she's been in there. There's been enough voices raised. There's been enough uh, crafting of the story to make it palatable to people. No offense taken, but people in the mainstream media to begin talking about it. Do you think that there there is any way to speed up that timeline of if the plan is now to reunite her and bring her back? I'm sure there are many people thinking that, so why do we need to wait 18 to 24 months? I think that's probably um, the time that she needs to get her head straight, that she's got to eat on her own and got to live on her own again in, in the Salish Sea. Now, one good bit of news a few years ago, a, a, a scientist went to Miami Aquarium with a recording of her former pod, L-Pod, and played it for, for Tokatai, and she came right up to the speaker and sat there throughout and obviously understood and uh, was recognized her, the, the sounds of her, of her pod mates. Well, that is uh, good news, definitely. Eric, we will continue following this and seeing what happens next with this whale. But thank you so much for joining us with the latest news today. Well, thank you very much for bringing the story to light. Well, if you have been wanting to get a bit of a head start on your spring and summer reading, look no further. It is the last Friday in March, and that means we are checking in with Marianne Yazedjian, Special Projects Manager at Black Bond Books and the Book Warehouse. Marianne, thanks so much for being with us again. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, we have some great, great titles to look at, uh, some by authors that I know people will recognize the names, maybe some not as much. Uh, the first one, though, is a book by Margaret Atwood. It is. So uh, this is the one, of course, everybody knows who Margaret Atwood is. This is her brand new book of short stories called Old Babes in the Wood. And this is recommended by my colleague Jana at our Hager bookstore. She says she loves this collection of short stories. Absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. 
Jana says she's been more of a fan of Atwood's nonfiction and poetry recently, but with this book, she says Atwood is moving closer and closer to her authentic self. And there are stories that anyone can relate to in this book. Uh, plus, it's really exciting. Margaret Atwood's actually going to be in Vancouver on May 7th for a special event with the Vancouver Writers' Fest. So we actually get to, to hear Margaret Atwood talk soon. Oh, interesting. How do you find it with short stories? Is it people either love them or would or prefer novels and, and don't like the when a book is kind of cut up into short stories? It's funny because a lot of people feel very strongly about it. But then if people who love novels then pick up a book of short stories, read it and think, it's actually quite like reading a novel. It's just told in a different format. I fully admit that I used to be a non-short story reader until I read a couple of collections and realized it's just the same as reading a novel. <laughs> Which, yeah, it seems odd, doesn't it? Because the, the, the wording is just so different and you're expecting it to be mm-hmm. a lot of choppy, shorter stories like the name. But you're right, it kind of, there is still a flow to it. Exactly. And sometimes I do want just to, to sit down and read 10 pages and, and be done and know that I've just read a really great individual story. Right. And I think, too, for summertime, when people maybe are busy or on vacation, mm-hmm. that can be a nice, a nice uh, rather than getting into a really complex, maybe novel that flips around in time and that kind of thing. Exactly. A, a break for your brain. <laughs> All right. Um, we are also looking at uh, this book is called On the Ravine by Vincent Lamb. What is this one about? Yes. So you might recognize this author from uh, his previous books, Bloodlettering and Miraculous Cures and The Headmaster's Wager. This book is about the devastating experience of addiction. We have two main characters. One is Dr. Chen, who works with addiction patients, and Claire, who's a gifted violinist who has developed an opioid addiction and overdosed in the last 24 hours. But this book is told with such sensitivity and empathy. It doesn't judge or stereotype. Vincent Lamb is a doctor himself, and I've heard him speak about this book, and it's absolutely a subject that is very close to his heart. Interesting. And I know he's won some awards in the past as well. Yes, I believe Bloodletting and Miraculous Cures was uh, was quite an award winner. Yes. All right. A very interesting one. Uh, so that one is called On the Ravine by Vincent Lamb. Let's move on to Burnham Wood. What is this one? Burnham Wood is Eleanor Catton's new book, and I absolutely loved it. So she's the author of The Luminaries that won the Booker Prize about 10 years ago. This one takes place in New Zealand, where a guerrilla gardening collective plans to go plant on a large farm owned by very rich individuals that's just been cut off due to a landslide. It's a fantastic character study. We have the founder of the collective and her closest companion, the wealthy owner of the farm who's just been knighted, and his wife, a billionaire American businessman who has dangerous ulterior motives about the farm, and a disgruntled former member of the gardening collective who knows everything is not as it seems. It is completely engrossing, engaging. I just could not put this book down. Hmm, and I, I was reading about this too, and it was described as Shakespearean in its drama. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, that is Burnham Wood, and that's B-I-R-N-A-M. And I can send the list out if anybody uh, emails after, uh, if they didn't catch the titles and names. Uh, one more on uh, this list, or the fiction list, and this is Goddess. I love the title. Mm-hmm. So Goddess by Deborah Hemming. Uh, she's a East Coast Canadian author. This book is recommended by Gina, who is our buyer. 
So in this novel, we have a a writer, an up-and-coming novelist, who attends a very exclusive wellness retreat on a remote Greek island where many strange things are happening that she cannot explain. So Gina really enjoyed this book, and she says that it's, it's hard for her to put into words because despite the seemingly light setting of the book, it's very introspective, and it makes you keep thinking long after you're finished it. Interesting. Does it when you're reading a book, how much does the the setting or what country or what kind of environment it's set in? How much does that matter to you? To me, a lot. I love it when an author can describe a setting so well that it makes you feel like you're actually there with them. Like, for example, many of these books are are set in very specific places. And like Vincent Lamb's On the Ravine is set in Toronto and in very specific places of Toronto. And I don't know Toronto well, but the way he describes it, you can you can actually see where his characters are. Hmm, interesting. I have a, a friend who's a very big reader, but she does not like reading books that are set in Vancouver or set in BC because she her argument is she wants to be taken away. She wants to be taken to somewhere where exactly that, that the, the author can take her there and make her feel like she's there. And, and she doesn't want it uh, to be in a place where she already knows what it's like. Oh, that's funny. I partly agree with that, but I also partly love reading things set in Vancouver because I love it when I recognize places in books and I've actually seen it myself in real life. Yeah, so yeah, it can go either way there for sure. All right, that one was Goddess by Deborah Hemming. Let's take a look at nonfiction, uh, Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. Yes, so I think this one looks really interesting. The author is Claire Detterer, and this book doesn't actually come out uh, for a little bit longer, but at the end of April. This is a pick by Marta, the manager of our Main Street store. And she says that in this book, the author takes this relevant question, do we separate the art from the artist to new heights? Cancel culture is one of those terms that's become so overused that it has almost lost its meaning. And with this book, the author goes from Picasso to Kanye, giving us a view of what it's like to ask ourselves hard questions about the people we may admire, debating both sides and testing our level of understanding of human nature, which I think just sounds fascinating. It does. And certainly uh, so timely when uh, we see stories uh, related to that, I think, almost every day, if not daily. Mm -hmm. All right. That one is called, again, Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Detterer. And let's see what else we have on the list. You have a kid's book to tell us about. What is this one? Yes. So this is brand new. It's called Big Tree by Brian Selznick. This is recommended by Sherry at our Maple Ridge store. And she cannot say enough about this book. She says, I love, love, love this book. Here we follow the journey of two seeds as they discover the discover the vulnerability and strength of nature. We experience the artistic style of Brian Selznick's unique way of using words combined with illustrations to tell a story. And even though this book is geared towards a kids, you know, kids age, middle grade sort of age, she said this one is one that the whole family will enjoy. Interesting. It's a, I just pulled it up as well. It's a really beautiful title or a beautiful cover. It is. And if you get a chance to flip through a few pages, there's illustrations almost on every page throughout the whole book. And it's just, it's so beautifully done. It is a big book, but it is like, it's one that'll become a family treasure. All right. That one is Big Tree by Brian Selznick. And Mm -hmm. uh, so a great list, a lot of different books on that list. And I know you also wanted to mention a big day is coming up next month. Yes. So Canadian Independent Bookstore Day is coming up on Saturday, April 29th, being celebrated by independent bookstores across the country. And at our stores, we're planning on so many fun activities to really give back to our amazing customers. 
Each of our stores is going to be doing draws for prize packs of books and other goodies. Some of our stores will have prize wheels where customers can spin to win. At every store, every purchase will get you a blind date with a book. So come in and check that out. A couple of our stores will have authors signing their new books. And basically, it's just a big celebration of sharing our love of books with our wonderful customers. So wherever you are across Canada on Saturday, April 29th, pop into your local independent bookstore and and share the love of books. That's a great idea. And I mean, any day, obviously do that. But so great that there's an actual day that's dedicated to that coming up next month as well. How are things as far as independent bookstores and things with, I would imagine, kind of, um, we're not all staying at home now and uh, maybe not forced to read, but uh, people may have picked up more books than maybe they would have uh, had we not had the pandemic. How are things going? Have you noticed a shift? Absolutely. I think a lot of people discovered and rediscovered their love of reading during the pandemic. A lot of kids as well, because as you know, a lot of people didn't didn't know what to do with their kids at the beginning of the pandemic. And a lot of people relied on books and activities and things like that to keep kids entertained. And we're just finding like so many new customers that we made during the pandemic are still shopping with us and still love coming in. And it's just been fantastic. People are reading more than ever, I think. All right. That is good to hear. Marianne, thanks as always. And we will talk to you again soon. Thank you so much.